Oh yeah. Okay. Let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, hello everyone. Dave Neal here. Welcome to the SAP, the Sex Actually podcast. Last week I wasn't here. Oh, did you guys miss me? I don't know if I gave you guys the heads up. If you don't follow the YouTube audio only folks out there, I was over in sunny and humid Belize. And let me tell you something. That was a fun, fun vacation. Uh, We'll get into it a little bit. The podcast is my form of sharing vacation photos with you. And I wanted to give a shout out to the Patreon members out there watching this. The video version is on Patreon only, patreon.com slash Dave Neal. And thank you to both communities, the podcast on audio and the Patreon on YouTube for all of your love. I really appreciated it. I was saying this last night in the live stream. This vacation was one of the first, I would say this, the first vacation where I felt, you know, we haven't really vacationed in the last year and a half. Um, and I'm not good on vacations. My family, and it's no offense to them, their, their idea of a vacation is kind of like, you know, go camping for a night or two. Totally fine. Once once or twice we've been on a trip to like Cancun. We went to Cancun once when I was um, maybe 19 or something. The whole family went. Um, but we, we, don't really, we don't really do vacations. My stepdad's a business owner. They don't get away too often. And when they do, they, get, they go on trips by themselves. So anyway... Um, my fiance Tasha, as you guys know, her family, they love to vacation. So whenever we can get them to go on a vacation or encourage us to go, it's great. But normally in my adult life, I've always been on this break-even mindset where like I'm just making enough money to break even, which means if you take a week off of work, that's like rent that you're not going to make that month. And it can put a damper on buying a daiquiri at the beach. It can put a damper on hanging out of the pool. Uh, This vacation was the first since the YouTube has performed better. We're up to um, almost 38,000 subscribers and YouTube has become, you know, like a uh, full-time employment of mine. Um, And I was able to make content while away. And a lot of people said, oh, Dave, why are you making YouTube videos while you're on vacation? You need a rest from that. And to be honest, the easy part with anything entertainment related is when the cameras or audio is on. That's the easy part. The hard part is pushing out the content, making thumbnails, doing all the promo and all that baloney. But um, for me to sit down with a cup of coffee at 6 a.m., while that sounds like horrifying to others, it's kind of a meditative thing for me. It's meditative to get out there and rant about subjects and have fun and laugh. You know, having the ability to laugh to myself and with myself in my videos is really therapeutic for me. And if people enjoy that, that's just amazing. You know, it's not like a, it's not withering away at my soul every video I make. So I was able to make, I don't know, like 20 videos in the 10 days there, you know, two or three, bang them out at a time and let them release throughout the day. And it was the first vacation I've ever been on where um, I felt like I was covered. I felt like I was okay. Because while as a freelancer, you don't get unemployment benefits, you do get certain benefits. Like uh, put it this way. If you work for a company and they're paying you uh, two to three vacation weeks a year and healthcare and all this and that, you know, that's, it's still, it's yours. You, you've earned it. It's, it's, the company's not losing money to give you vacation. It's kind of just like a necessity. Like we work and we have, you know, it's crazy in other countries when they hear we have 10 vacation days, they go, what are you talking about? We get five weeks paid vacation. And then, you know, like certain countries, you know, the, you know, as we, as we've seen when they go on vacation, it's like, look, I'm not going to respond to any emails anybody sends while I'm on vacation. I'm not going to respond to them when I get back. I am gone. I am I am non-existent, and that's great for the companies that can for the employees that can do that. Um, when you're a freelancer, you don't have that. But what you do have is less people that take a cut out of what you do. You know, like when I make a video, YouTube takes 50% of the ad revenue, which seems like a lot, but that's their cut for running their platform, and then I get the other 50%. I don't, you know, when I put it this way in stand up and um, in the screen actors guild um, you know, an agent gets 10% and usually a manager gets between 10 and 20%. So if I book a gig um, and it pays say like $10,000, which is a lot of money and in most gigs, the uh, you know, SAG minimum for a feature film is like $900. Let's do that. Let's go with a SAG minimum. Let's round it up to a thousand bucks. You book a thing for a thousand bucks. You're going to get taxed at 40%. So you're making 600 bucks, but on that thousand dollars, you're get you're paying 20% to a manager and 10% to an agent. So that's 300. So you get your taxes out. You've now made $300 out of a thousand. You made 30% of what the income is. So for YouTube, to, you can actually make some more money than that. And for other companies where you don't rent out your time and you work for yourself, you realize that 
that the clock is never off, but you also have a way higher threshold for money you can make. Like if you if you're on salary for $100,000 a year, but you come up with some intellectual property that's owned by your company that earns them a million dollars, yeah, sure, a good company would bonus you out, but you'll never make the full amount of whatever it is you came up with. So anyway, the point is, is that I love doing what I do. I love having the, the, I love having zero boss and I love uh, living and dying by what I do. And this year it's turned a profit. And this year I've been able to go on vacation and be like, you know what? I'm not going to just, I'm not going to worry if the drinks $12 versus a $5. I'm just going to enjoy the thing I want to enjoy. I'm going to finally look at a menu and not look for the sandwich section. And maybe I'll look for the entree section. <laughs> Excuse me. It sounds so pathetic to say that, but that's kind of like really what it feels, what it is. You know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm not going to fret over, do I want to get the extra appetizer? And I don't know, maybe that's some, um, you know, they say it's like, um, what's it called? Creep. There's a financial creep, a money creep, whatever it's called. When you, uh, income creep, whenever you make a little bit more money, you end up spending a little bit more. And, you know, to an extent, that's okay. You know, like the, <laughs> I was, uh, today I was like, Tasha, I need to buy some new shoes. I haven't bought new sneakers in two years. You know, I've just been wearing the same old sneakers running around and I forget what it was for my marathon days, but I think you're supposed to you're supposed to like replace your sneakers every hundred miles you run or something like that, which is like crazy. Cause I've probably run a thousand miles since I've replaced my sneakers. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but she's like, well, she's like, well, just make sure that whatever money you go to buy sneakers, you put away in your savings. And it's like, I, and I was like, yeah, no, I'm saving like 90% of the YouTube revenue I'm getting. you know, I, and also when, when you're a, uh, you know, which is way more than, um, the cost of sneakers, when you're, um, a freelancer, you're going to have to pay taxes on all this at the end of the year. So I'm, I've figured out an LLC and I'm going to, you know, I, I, have, I haven't currently put myself on salary, but we're still kind of figuring out as the business is young, you know, this year, YouTube officially became a business where as before it was just, you know, I was being paid out as a, you know, sole proprietor, I guess you would call it. And now it's like an LLC, uh, you know, it's just a way to sort of protect myself and all, and all of that. But anyway, what's the point of all that? The point was I had such a blast on vacation and I was, and I'm so thankful for all of you guys for being a part of that and for helping uh, me realize this year that my sort of um, worth, my, uh, my uh, product in my speech is more valuable than any side gigs that I did that helped me float along. So while I am thankful for the side gigs that have been out there that have helped me kind of float along until things kind of, uh, took flight, I have to say, um, I'm so grateful for the people that, that understand that what, you know, when you work a minimum wage job, when you work a side gig, you, you, you get, you give them minimum wage job or you give them side gig energy. So for all these side gigs you've, I've always done, it's like, I get, it's like dress for the job you want, not the job you have like work hard and all that. But a lot of times it's like, okay, you don't necessarily want to put all of your energy into a gig that is your side gig. There's a reason why they're paying me 15 bucks an hour to do it versus, you know, other, uh, you know, other gigs that might pay me a thousand dollars an hour. The reason is, is because it's a job that not many people want to do. It's a job that it doesn't require too much of my bandwidth. And that's exactly where you're going to get. So for the last, you know, five or 10 years, I've taken gigs that, that I've, I've tried to take so that they don't drain my mental, um, energy you know, so that they don't drain like me wanting to go to a stand-up show or write or write comedy material or make a YouTube video. And um, finally, due to the pandemic and shutting down all other gigs, I was able to commit the time and energy needed to kind of things to get things to take flight. So if there's any sort of, um, I don't know, message to people out there, it's that, you know, find out, find a healthy balance between the gigs you have to take to pay the bills and the time and energy to water your own plants, you know? All right. So anyway, we'll have more info on the vlog channel with, with regards to our trip to Belize. But we had an absolute blast. We uh, went in the rainforest. We did the coastline. We did a peninsula. We did an island. It was a ton of fun. All right. I'm going to read questions I wrote this morning, uh, questions on Instagram at dneil. So you can go follow me there if you haven't already. And I asked people for any questions. I said I was going to cover them on today's episode. So let's get right into the questions here. 
Uh, first one, can we live in the 80s and 90s again? 2000s kind of suck. Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I think the 90s, you know, of course, I can't pretend to understand what you mean by the 80s and 90s versus the 2000s, but I think, um, I think life pre-social media needs to be analyzed. The things that we did before, you know, when I was in Belize at the third location, uh, shout out to Teresa, we stayed at Villa Tortuga, um, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, she gave us her Airbnb. It was absolutely gorgeous and amazing time. And there was one main road and you had to drive, you know, 30 minutes on this like kind of like small road in your golf cart to get into town. And it was amazing. And we didn't need GPS on our phones because we just knew where to go. And we knew how much time it was going to take because there was never like really any traffic holding us up. And it just reminded me of that time before, like we had our GPS attached to our phones where we just needed our phones nonstop. And we've created a world where we need our phones nonstop. And um, aside from that, you know, all the, all the, uh, aspects of social media that are addictive, it would be nice to live in a world in the 80s or 90s where you said, hey, I'll meet you at the bar at 7 p.m. And then you'd sit at the bar and wait for somebody. You know what I mean? Or you'd show up to someone's door and ring their doorbell. No one does that. You text, hey, I'm out front, you know? So there was a world that was way more anticipatory and way more exciting than social media. And it would be nice to get back to that in certain places. I always wonder if I have kids how I would raise them with regards to social media and maintaining control over like giving them the time and space to not be looking at their phones and their screens. You know, I have to do this. I consider myself a fairly enlightened person. You know, I'm sure I'm still minusculely enlightened compared to other people out there, but more so than your average person controlled by their ego. I like to think a little deeper. I would think with that said, I have to, I have to know, I have to feel my feelings and know, all right, I need to go on a run and listen to some music. And you go, well, music's attached to your phone, so you're sort of still like addicted to your phone. Sure, but at least music gets you out of the head state of like comparing yourself to others and, and scrolling through social media on someone else's highlight reel or <laughs> seeing the gigs you didn't get or whatever the case might be. You, We have to continue to find ways to reach that meditative state, whether it be you know, like flow state, right? So to have kids where they're on their phones the whole time or looking at TV or whatever the case may be, it makes you wonder, like, are they ever, are they going to be creative? I feel like to be creative, you have to have that space to access the parts of your brain that require free fall thought, that require not to be like engaged with something. So like, I like listening to podcasts, but every once in a while, I got to turn the podcast off because I'll be listening to someone else's story and not letting mine develop in my brain, in the ether, in the middle of nothing, that primordial goop that just exists and something becomes of that. And to do creative things or entrepreneurial stuff or, you know, be in inventive or innovative, you have to really exist in a place of mental freefall, of mental just kind of like drifting in the abyss of the float tank, the energy. And people can find that in different ways through Taekwondo or yoga or painting. I mean, I used to have the most, the most amazing time when I was actually painting houses, when I was outdoors painting, because I was able to uh, do, do a task that was very, um, I would say muscular in nature, very rhythmic and didn't require much thought. And I was able to drift away and literally Oh my gosh, there was nothing better than when I was painting houses full-time. Now, I'll have to say, it, they were really tough days, but I really loved I really loved the idea of getting out of my own head. And with social media, we have such a problem with that. So yes, let's go back to a time or at least learn to navigate social media. You know, I'll just say this. I was talking to my sister. She posted something about how kids in schools shouldn't wear masks and whatever. And there wasn't much empathy to her post. And like, who cares if we contract it, give it to other people? Like, you shouldn't live in fear. And it just, it hit me the wrong way. And I responded. And then someone else responded to me. And I was like, listen, you probably sound like a nice person, but I don't respond. Like, I have a rule. I don't respond to people I don't know on Facebook. If I, if I, it always, it'd be like this. If I'm at a, if I'm out to dinner with, with my sister and we're having a conversation and then somebody walks up and chimes in, you'd be like, get out of here. What are you doing? Yet on Facebook, we just start cross-talking with people we don't know. So in order to protect my own sanity, I try not to do that. Now, like this person was very respectful and she was like, I understand you don't want to talk to people you don't know. And I was like, good, cool. You know, uh, so just don't take it personally. It's just, this is how I manage 
losing my mind with strangers because you would never have these conversations with people you know where you're disrespectful in person. So another example of how social media needs to be managed, not let it manage us. All right, Leah said, as a kid, what job did you want to have someday is what you do now at All Related. So as a kid, the biggest thing I wanted to do was be a pro baseball player. Um, I kind of realized... What, when I got cut in college, it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, I realized like no matter what I did to train, I could only throw 86 miles an hour. And I was like, look, I'm not even close to where the threshold is for that. And I also saw that other, you know, I, I saw that other people were like hanging on to dreams that, that they may or may not hit. I do appreciate people that pursue that road and that grind, but I kind of just was burned out in my own way and realized uh, this, just, this just isn't going to happen for me. And what I actually learned was I was able to, place play um, baseball in adult leagues like I just assumed like when high school is over you're done but I found all these cool adult leagues and, and I'm able to play at a high level with people that I love and I'm, I shouldn't say people that I love but people that also love baseball and we connect over that now I play on this team that's so diverse I mean the team is it's it's the most diverse group of guys you could put together and it's so refreshing and again when you talk about meditative things the baseball is that for me. You're, you're not out there with your phone. You're out there pitching and sweating and doing your thing and sitting in center field. And it's a real, like, you know, I've, I always say, like, I've had moments where I had a baseball game after my dad died and I had a baseball game after my buddy Diggums passed away from a stroke. And I just remember being, like, in the outfield. And I don't even play outfield, but on that occasion, they put me in left field. And I remember something about being in the outfield, you are so far away from other people that there's just this real... You're just out there. You know, you can yell, you can you can do whatever you want. You you react and I was out there and you know, I could probably barely see cuz I was I had my 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 um I was overcome with emotion. My good friend of mine passed away suddenly and I didn't want to miss the baseball game. I think I, I wanted to like be a part of something that got me out of like, you know, a safe haven if you will. So baseball was that. Um as far as like proper careers as a kid, it wasn't until college that I really thought of like what I wanted to do in the business world. And I always loved the sexy idea of business, the wearing suits, the GQ, the Matthew McConaughey working for, you know, ad company and how to lose a guy in 10 days, how to lose a, wait, is that what it's called? How to lose a guy in 10 days. And, you know, just frost yourself like that whole like idea of marketing and advertising. So I got into marketing, worked in an ad agency for five months, got fired. And a uh, perfect example of like, I got fired because I wasn't good at what I did. Bottom line, there wasn't like some crazy event that happened. I just sucked at the job. It was very clerical and I wasn't good at it. It wasn't creative and it was managerial. It was literally my worst of uh, features put together. I, I was kicking butt at interviews and I could really pitch myself, but my brain just isn't good at that. I, I don't have a good like brain. That's like secretarial and managerial. Um, so uh, when you work in an ad, ad agency, there's literally a level that's called creative and there's a level that's called business or, you know, whatever they divide them up and the creatives and the business never even meshed, you know? So I was working on the business side when I should have known that I wasn't filling my creative itch. Uh, from there, I, I got into acting and started to get into acting and improv and stand up, And it got me to a place where I realized, oh, I, I wasn't watering these plants but they weren't dead and I was able to revive them early on when I was only 22. I got fired when I was 22. Never worked a traditional job again after that. Um, so when you ask what job as a kid I wanted to have and what you, what you do now, is it all related? I, I guess I guess without knowing what I wanted to do as a kid is less like um, job title and more about, it's less, it's less about like the title and more about the qualities of what you want in life. And I always tell this to people like, don't necessarily look for like the job title, look for working for a company or for yourself that pulls out the qualities that you love. I love camaraderie. I love fraternity. I love family and friends. And what I do now is stand up unites me with some, some of the bravest, hardest working oddballs that have ever existed. People that are just putting themselves out there. Some sleeping in their cars to, to make it, you know, just to make it you know, uh, the, taking crazy sacrifices. And what I always knew was like, I could have taken a job in New York in business and I could have like probably made crazy money, but it just wasn't, that just wasn't really uh, sexy or appealing to me. And while it's taken a long time to kind of catch my footing, I feel like, um, I feel like I've kind of realized uh, what my, 
what my um, uh, bandwidth, what my energy needs to go towards, and that's provided that's provided uh, tons of abundance. Um, I will say this: I never had any parents that really told me no. They, my mom was always good at not telling me, no, you can't do that. Or, or, you know, so I've never had to prove anyone else wrong. I've always just been competitive in my mind to like reach for big things. And when I look back, every, everything I've ever tried to do is re- just uh, reeks of failure. Like stand up, you fail a thousand percent of the time. You know, even your best sets, there's still jokes you missed out on or this or that. Uh, pitching, you fail so often. You know, in baseball, I played quarterback. You just nonstop failure. I keep on putting myself in these positions to fail. And I don't think I've been putting myself in those positions um, because uh, I love like pain. I'm not like a masochist. I think I've just put myself through in a level of adversity that will prepare me for, for what's to come. And while we're never totally prepared for things, every job we've ever had, when you look back, they do help you and provide you tools for where we're going. Um, M Lambert said, how did you get into reporting on the bachelor? It was just a whim that I had to do a bachelor recap. I didn't know if they really existed in my eyes. Only, only women were watching the bachelor. It was kind of taboo for men to watch it. At least what, that's what I thought. And, um, I thought it'd be fun to like give my take. And that was probably six or seven years ago. And then I started this past year making videos, doing commentary of things that were going on outside the show, political commentary, socio, economic, psychological, just whatever I could, you know? And then when the Colton Underwood situation and other situations came up, my opinion after having done my podcast for years and other sort of stand-up comedy, I think my own uh, ability to get from A to Z is, I don't know, it's probably unique in some way. I'm not trying to like pat myself on the back, but I do have like, I do have a way of like zigzagging around topics and bringing it all together and having a free form way of thinking that, you know, I was going to buy a teleprompter at the beginning of the pandemic because I was like, well, I can, I can like, I can make a lot of content. I'll get a teleprompter. And then I was like, oh, a lot of times, and hold on while I sip this coffee. A lot of times when you write stand up comedy, you write as a writer, not as a performer, not as you would say things. So you can tell if like a new comic wrote their act out and then like rememorized it and they just say it. So stand-up comedy is all about efficiency of words, which doesn't always mean the uh, less amount of words. It just means getting from A to Z like a like a lightning bolt tries to find the ground. You try to find the, the, the right path. And with writing, you don't always get there. So with a teleprompter... I was like, you know what? I think I'm better at like ranting than I am at what a teleprompter would give me. A teleprompter would give me like a rail to be driving on and I need an off-road vehicle. I need to find the road, get off the road and then find the road again. So all-terrain vehicle Dave over here. Um, I think that's my thing. You know, every once in a while people go, geez, I can't follow your content or it's too this or it's too that. And it's like, I think what I've come to learn is like, do what I do what I can to limit the flaws that... Um, that uh, turn people away, but do what I can to embrace the parts of me that are different and unique. And while I might not be for everybody, I, uh, you know, people might say, you know, like I've gotten an un ungodly amount of people this year that have said that listening to my YouTube channel has been like therapeutic for them. And I am not saying that to pat myself on the back. I don't love my voice. Who does? No one loves their voice. I'm you know, you know, but for whatever reason, People can put me on and know that I'm going to give them some information. I'll give them some chuckles. Like I've always said, I'm not trying to be anything bigger than what I am. I'm a friend waiting with you at the bus stop. And I've needed that friend in my day. And I know there's people out there that need me as their friend. And the point is, is that, is that the technology that we all have here can be used to tear each other apart or can be used to build a community. And I think we've done the community. Um, Yeah. So this year, you know, I followed the analytics and I was like, okay, some of my bachelor content, the click through rate, it's called QTR or CTR click through rate um, on a video might be 5%, you know, 5% of the time YouTube shows my thumbnail to somebody, they click. Well, I started making some content that was like my opinions on things and the click-through rate went from 5% to 30%. If you can get it over 20%, YouTube's probably going to recommend you to new to new people. So what happened was YouTube started recommending my content to millions of people. And people were like, 
geez, like, you know, because of that, you'll get some negative people that go, geez, who's this guy? Because it's like, I'm, it's like a being recommended food you don't want. No, thanks. But to a lot of people that were hungry out there, they were like, oh, there's a market for this. So I essentially started finding ways to create content that's more streamlined, realizing people didn't care too much about the flashy graphics or the post-production and find a way to make that. And I've, I kind of um, channeled some of my independent news programs I watch and I took the equipment that they use and the software they use. And I said, all right, I'll just start making my own news. And Bachelor, I think, I think for the most part, people click on the videos for the information, like whatever the spoiler is going to be or this or that. But I think they stick around because we go places. We talk about uh, topics that are, uh, you know, not easy to talk about in a tweet or, or something quickly. And it's long form. And, you know, what some people in the past might have said, like, it might be negative that I rant too much or I'm too long. For YouTube, I think that actually rewards content that's longer. So if I make a 20 minute video and the average view duration is 50%, that's 10 minutes of watch time versus like someone who makes a two minute video and people watch it 50%, that's one minute watch time. Well, YouTube's gonna promote you watching the 10 minutes versus the one minute and they promote longer form content like that. So the key for me is how can I keep people around? But also if you don't, if it's too long for you, maybe I'll try to front load all the information in the first five minutes and then people can stick around for the rant. But I know when I watch my favorite YouTubers, I actually like the longer content. It's less for me to click on. I can click the video. I can go do the dishes. I can go hang out and I can listen to them rant about something. So, um, uh, when you ask me, um, the question was, how did you get into reporting on The Bachelor? It's kind of like, well, that was the part of YouTube that stuck. That's what stuck for me. And I do love, I do look forward to like, uh, ma to making opinionated videos about things outside The Bachelor world. I think once I hit kind of like 100,000 subscribers, those videos might come more naturally. But in the meantime, I probably make 90% of my content Bachelor related and 10% will be like other things like, Britney Spears or Shikari Richardson or Simone Biles, like, you know, conversations that are out there in the public, but also will attract the audience from The Bachelor because, you know, you, in order to like bend your audience into new directions, you can't just go from like Bachelor content to like, all right, I'm going to talk about how to, uh, you know, um, refurbish the uh, engine in an old Buick. No, like that's, that's not going to work. But if I go Bachelor content to Britney Spears, okay, we've got some entertainment news. We can like go in that direction. So I'm just trying to like delicately, uh, you know, keep evolving while, while I bring the audience along. Thank you so much for that question. Aaron Casey said, before we knew you as Dave, the bachelor power recapper, what was life like? What makes Dave, Dave? Wow. What a great question. What makes Dave, Dave? This is one of those questions you, you know, this is like a eulogy. I feel like other people would be better at answering this. Uh, because it's hard to really acknowledge what makes you, you, I mean, like turn it back on you guys. What makes you, you, for me, I've always, I've always considered myself. And again, I've, I've got days where I'm negative and I need to be put in the right direction. And everything I say is kind of like an energy suck. But then I think, I think I've taken a greater responsibility to searching for the positive and the grace in situations. And it's been, it's, you know, like as a comic, I feel like I'm, I feel like comedians are sort of counter culture with the way we think about things. So if everyone, if you're watching a magic trick and everyone and the, the magician wants you to look at your, his left hand, the comic's going to look at his right hand. We're just looking in places everyone's not because we're looking for the alternative viewpoint in the alternative sort of message than maybe what you're getting from mainstream media or things like that. So for me, with social media, I see all the, I see all the fear-based propaganda and us tearing each other apart and this and that. And for me, it's like, I think it's a little more complicated when I see somebody that tweeted something uh, racist or sexist or fat phobic, I go, okay, is that an awful person? Or are they led by some ignorance or whatever, you know? So I'm not necessarily apologetic for people, but I do, I do think what makes me, me is I'm, I'm like, uh, sort of toxically finding the grace in situations that maybe there isn't much. And I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but that's what I've been doing. And I've learned that sometimes when you find the grace in situations, it might be offensive to certain people that feel offended by a situation. If someone's mad at somebody and I'm giving that person grace, then they transfer that anger onto me. And so what I've had to learn is that um, you can be, you can, <laughs> you know, it's great. It's like, you don't get a limited amount of grace you can have. You don't get a little limited amount of empathy you can have. We can continue, like, 
like me being funny on stage doesn't take away from me wanting to give grace to people or feel there's someone I know that's suffering from like some addictions. I don't know if it's Adderall or what, but they're kind of going off their rocker a little bit. It's someone in the comedy world. And I was talking to my buddy about it. I was like, I just feel bad for this person. I think, so I was talking to a buddy and the buddy was like, man, that person's crazy. Like F them. And I was like, well, they're suffering. They're, they're, their brains fried. They're on too much Adderall or they fry themselves with Coke or whatever. I don't know like exactly what it is, but clearly they've got an addiction. And, and, and my buddy was just like, man, now they're just, they're crazy. And like, for me, I was like, I can't believe I can't, like, it's so easy to just feel, feel someone's pain. And I can't believe that a good friend of mine, it's like, I, it's like, I almost think less of that person in a way. Cause I'm like, um, like, uh, like I know that they're, they're just not there, but I was like, don't you feel bad for this person? <laughs> you know, like, I'm giving them pity. Like, I feel bad that they have this issue. Now, nah, man, F that person. I don't know. Um, Chase Man, who is a neighbor of mine from Rhode Island and a former frequenter of my brunch mimosa shows, said, what void does Rhode Island fill that Los Angeles could never? I would say small town life. You know, I do love my family and I love uh, driving around town and seeing my family. Oh, my uncle's got a barbecue. I'm going to go swing by there. My buddy's got this. I used to feel like I was the mayor of town driving around all my friends and family's events. And I I do, that's more so than anything geographical. I do, I do. I do struggle mainly with the fact that I'm missing my stepdad's birthday tomorrow. I'm missing, I miss so much. I haven't been home for a Christmas since I moved away and I miss so much. And I think as we get back to normal life, I do want to spend more time visiting home. I do want to spend more time, um, you know, just seeing my family. And I'm like, what am I doing? 4,000 miles, 3,000 miles away and not seeing them more when I can. And that's that's been, in the last year, a factor of COVID. And before that, a factor of money. Like, how much time away can we take? And um, I hope that those two things will change and I'll be able to see my family more. So yeah, the void is more community-based. Here's a funny question. Do you and Tasha ever fight? It seems like you get along so well. We fight so much. We've we've really had to learn. I can't like, we've learned so much about how we fight. Like I can't speak for Tasha and what she's gone through in the past, but I know I can't raise my voice one decibel level or it's going to flare her limbic system and the fight's over. And that doesn't, that doesn't work for anybody. Uh, I mean, she's just, you know, for whatever reason, she's explained it before, but like, that's just, that's just the way she, that's, that's kind of like, I don't know. It's, she'd been yelled at too much in the past or, or whatever is a highly sensitive person. So I have to treat our fights like with the utmost amount of grace and, and tons of patience and space and not get too close to her. And, and just like, it's a, you know, it's like a, you know, like a, a stray bobcat. I'm like, I'm not trying to get sliced in the, I'm clawed by this, you know? And, and I say that with so much love and I've learned how defensive I am when she'll accuse me of like, you know, you said you'd be home at this time. And I'm, well, you know, I'm trying my best in the traffic. And I, I get so defensive because I know like altruistic, I know I'm trying the best to like keep everyone happy. And a lot of times as a people pleaser, when you're trying to like keep the fiance happy and you're trying to keep your work happy and stay productive, you, there's sometimes not enough hours in the day to make it all happen. And the last, the, the, all the utmost sacrifice I always make is my own sort of like, I'll, I'll like always put, you know, I'll cancel, I'll schedule 25 hours worth of stuff and the 10 hours worth of stuff that I'll end up cutting away will be the stuff I need for my own mental health. And that's kind of like what a codependent does. They put other people's needs ahead of their own, but yeah, we do get along, but we've had to learn a lot of ways. Like I know I'm kind of like a do it all last minute, rush out the door, catch the flight. She needs like hours days to prepare for the flight. Um, so I've had to learn like her ang uh, anxiety levels. And this is what I look at with the Dale and Claire issue where Dale's going to have to learn what Claire's triggers are and just like try, try your best when possible to avoid them. Try your best to avoid triggers, avoid situations that are going to, you know, be stressful and just communicate. And that's, that can be hard to do, but we've definitely done a better job of it over time. But early on we get in these fights and I'd be like, what the hell is she even mad at? And I still get upset, like, what the hell is she even mad at? But what I've realized, and this is probably my first relationship really analyzing this, is that she's 
got valid opinions, thoughts, and reactions to things, even if they're different than mine. So she might get stressed out over something that doesn't provide me any stress whatsoever, but it doesn't change the fact that she's stressed out over it. So like being mindful of how someone else reacts to situations is a big, is a big factor in keeping people happy and, and all that. So I don't know if that makes sense. Will you convert to a full-time YouTuber and part-time comedian? Love your content. Comedy, stand-up comedy is the, um, single greatest creative thing I do that provides me happiness. Um, doing YouTube full-time in quotes, I think I'd like to get it down to like four hours a day or something that's like a job, but also but also have the time and energy to do stand-up. I won't be anything. I think I've communicated this to Tasha. Like I won't be happy if I'm just doing YouTube. It's not the be-all, end-all for my happiness. It has provided me an extreme amount of abundance and not the same stress that other jobs have because I've been able to like get ahead of my finances and get ahead of other things. But by all means, I'm you uh stand up is is for me and for a lot of people the sort of key to like you know you can have a job as a writer and make a ton of money but like when that's all said and done when everything else is gone stand up that's like the rawest most personal thing you can offer somebody so while all these bells and whistles are great stand up's not going to be going anywhere it is something that i've still struggled with getting extra stage time and finding like ways to I'm not good at self-promoting uh, with stand-up. I'm not good at asking people for stage time. I don't like asking people for anything. I'm not going to ask anyone for a ride to an airport or for any... I just am not going to ask people for anything. So for stand-up, you have to ask people for spots on their shows, and it can be very tough. But I'm getting to the point now where I've got you people in the YouTube and podcast audience that would come to stand-up shows, and that is a currency. So if anyone's out there and you would come to a stand-up show, let me know, because even if I can only fill up a couple seats on a show, I provide value to that show by being funny on stage, but by also providing an audience. So that's something that, um, you know, I struggle with of like, all right, how do I get this newfound audience of mine on YouTube? And how do I translate that into demand for seeing me in person? Because, you know, sure. There's a couple people that are like, I'll see you when you're in Boise. I'll see you when you're in Nashville. But like, you know, you need like a, a good handful of people to, to get onto certain shows. And that's something where I'm still kind of being like, how do I even tell these bookers? Hey, you know, like, I know that guy's got 100,000 TikTok fans, but my 38,000 YouTubers are worth a lot more than that. They're super loyal. Um, let's see what else we got here. Let's see what else we got here. Getting to the end of these questions. Thank you so much to everyone who left these questions on Instagram. Tell us about your early dating. I know how you met Tasha, but how did it go down? Who started things? Oh, I thought you meant early dating like before Tasha. Tasha and I were friends. I told the story a trillion times, but we were friends before we started dating. I always thought she was beautiful <coughs> and we always got along so well, but I, I truly mean this, that I wasn't trying to date her, <coughs> excuse me, for a while. When I moved back to Los Angeles, having known Tasha and I had a good sort of like flirty friendship um, and we were both single, that's when I kind of made my move. And, you know, I think it, I think she was hesitant, but in hindsight, it makes so much sense now makes so much sense in hindsight because on the day, you know, when I, when I would, I would like, I would be like, all right, I think she's into me, but like there was mixed signals. What I, what I know about her now is that she's kind of like a little bit adverse to change and she was happy to have me as a friend, but I think she was like worried about like losing that friendship because we would spend a lot of time together. And, and I kind of had to be like, I kind of had to be like the shaman that was like, Hey, Hey, let's, let's not worry about the fear of losing something. I would be, I would be more hell bent if we never explored what could be. And that was my mindset. And I, and she went along with it and she was like, like sort of hesitant, I think, but like we, we went a, hesitant in the sense that I think the, the flirting and the, those good vibes were always there. But I just think like there was kind of like, we, I, I, I honestly, I don't know. I don't know. But we, when, when we did cross that threshold of like a kiss, it was like we immediately became, it was almost like we passed so many levels of normal relationships because we were already really good friends. We were already, um, had a lot of, a lot of things in common. We knew a lot about each other already. So we had probably only dated a few months before we moved in together and we moved in together sort of on a trial basis. I, I basically had my house in the Valley 
that I was living with four other guys and I had one guy, so it was a four bedroom. And then I had one guy living in like a, in like a second living room who was like crashing on the couch. And I was like, you can take over my room for the summer and I'll go live with Tasha and we'll see like what that's all about. And you know, if it didn't work, I would have had a place to go back to. And there were times when there was like it, it, there were rough times, you know, we lived in a small studio together, but I think what I learned about Tasha is, and I didn't realize this right away, but she, she really wants loyalty. And I think she has a fear of like people that aren't going to be loyal to her. And I can't speak for her. But for me, I think I think I just had to show her that I wasn't going to quit on her. And I think that's important for a relationship to be like, look, while a fight like this might might be like the deal breaker that would end past relationships, um, I'm not going to let my ego or your ego or our collective egos get in the way and in and like let fear lead us when there's something good there. And it requires and I've never done this in the past. I've been in relationships where just like if someone wants to give me, me, give me the exit, I'm like, thank you for your service. Goodbye. Um, and I haven't been in relationships that were like blowouts, this and that, but you know, like I've just, I've, I've had a few break, few rough breakups, but I've never fought for a relationship the way I fought for this one. And I think I just, I just didn't want the relationship to end on. Uh, I didn't, I didn't want the relationship to be defined by the, areas we couldn't communicate. I didn't want that to overshadow all of the good. And I think throughout time, that investment that we've made to enlarge in the good and turn rough conversations or fights into learned moments, learning, uh, lear- you know, learning all these different things about each other. Like Tasha knows, like if we go on vacation, she knows I like to be at a pool where there's other people I can people watch and and have some, like, I don't want to be in the place where you don't see someone for miles. And, but she, but she likes a lot of quiet space. So there's so many compromises that we can make so that we can sort of feed each other's, you know, I, she would identify as an introvert. I would identify as like, um, sort of in some ways an introvert, but I like to be around people. I don't have to talk to people, but I like to be around people. I know that would be considered an extrovert, but I also feel like I can gain energy from being alone. But there, for me, it's like, I love being social too. I love, so So we've had to kind of like figure out what each other's goals are, our, life, our love languages. I mean, love language wasn't something we talked about early on, but once we realized, all right, Tasha needs X amount of time. I need X amount of affirmations. Her family and, and her they are the worst at affirmations. It doesn't exist. They don't do them. So I've had to be like, hey, listen, I'm I'm a comic. I live for an audience's laughter. I live for hugs. I live for feelings of support. And when my career wasn't going well, when I was having a lot of struggles, it's hard to find that support and having someone to lean on that's like believing in me. What I learned over time is that she wasn't quitting on me. So she did believe in me even though it wasn't, you know, seen in ways that you might see on the baseball field where everyone's slapping each other's butts. She's kind of like comes at it from a different mindset. So for us to use each other's skills, which are different and use each other's communication patterns and, and personality types, which are different and understand that they can fit together like a puzzle piece. It's, it takes what some people might say as like, see as deal deal breakers like well you guys are completely different it's like yeah in some ways we are and in some ways being different is what keeps the relationship fresh because I don't think I would want to be with somebody who's too much like me it it she challenges me and I think I challenge her with a lot of like ways you know I'll use a lot of like comedy you know some people might think it's exhausting to live with a comic but you know like if she says something like funny or 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 I can contradict whatever the case might be. Um, I'm there to be like, call bullshit, you know? And she does it to me and we can call bullshit on each other while we still invest in each other. So like, we're not trying to tear each other down. Like if Tasha's YouTube takes off and she's able to quit her side gigs, that's not a negative for me. That's like our combined wealth and abundance goes up. So I've got no, like there's, you know, people, it was something surprising. People go, Dave, you're so supportive of her. It's like, yeah, well, we're investing in each other. We're each other's like greatest assets and we believe in each other. And and when you believe in someone, I don't want to find success and then she's unhappy at her job. How crazy would that be? No, I want her to like 
feel what I feel with the fact with like uh, building her own equity and what she does and in moving into the next phase of her life, uh, you know, building that wealth and that following and, and, and all that. So anyway, I think that's all of the questions I got. Let me double check and see if any any new questions have come in since then. But I appreciate um, uh, uh, I, I got a couple new ones. How did you get into stand up comedy? Um, I got into stand up comedy from watching. I always wanted to try it, but it was like it was one of those things that was so far from my reality that I never did. When I moved to LA for the first time, one of the first days I was in LA, a friend was uh, my. I drove here with my cousin Celeste, and one of her friends was in a stand up comedy showcase, and I went to it as a paid audience member, and I saw that they were offering courses, and I just took a course. And then once, once, once I got into the growth mindset of realizing, oh, you're going to bomb until you don't, you're going to be bad. You know, i I finally did it. I did my first set and I actually did, had a good set. I mean, in hindsight, it was probably really hack material, but like I had the tools I needed. And then it, and then that was nine years ago. Um, I never felt more, I never was able to sleep better than I did after starting stand up comedy because I knew I was finally pursuing something that was 100% mine and 100% um, uh, something in my control. Control is a big thing. It's good to have control over your future and, and what you're doing. Jen asked, if you could have any job in the world and no matter what it paid you crazy money, what would you do? Okay, if I could have any job and it paid me crazy money, I mean, honestly, it wouldn't be too too different than what I do now, but I've said this before and we'll end on this as a visualization, right? I think what I would do, I would like to have like a barn where I'm able to have like, my podcast set up. I would like to have, you know, good friends of mine be producers, people that could like help out that, you know, take, take, um, you know, t- yeah, I would love to be able to employ other people that I, that I like value and, and, um, and, and have that fraternity with, excuse me. <clears throat> so I look at, um, people like, um, Pat McAfee, he was a former punter for the um, what Indianapolis Colts. He quit. He quit being a punter for the Colts. You know, he's making a couple million bucks a year. He quit it and started his own podcast. And he has like a facility that's like a factory in uh, you know, in Indiana or wherever he is. And he employs his friends and they shoot the shit and they have a huge audience. And I think with what I do. Um, I don't quite have this set up in my new place for like a podcasting studio, but I'd love to have a place that has good one-on-one podcast studios. One of the problems with making that content now is how much time it takes to do post-production, you know, the editing, the camera angles. It's just, it's a lot. Um, but if I have, when I, when, I, I'm trying not to say if, but more saying when, when I get to a place where I've got the overhead to make that happen, I can see a barn or large garage that has my green screen set up for like entertainment news. Cause I like to, I like ranting and talking about things. So I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if this is not the right answer, but like if I could do whatever I want, I think this is it. Um, I love stand up comedy. So I would always want to do that, but I love the idea. Oh, you know what? I think I would, I think I would probably get into more long form, uh, even fictional, like, um, like, uh, directing, uh, in producing my own like uh, content I've done, I've done, you know, dozens of short films and sketches and a lot of the little tools I've learned along the way with editing and sound and, and all that could, could, you know, would be good skill sets moving forward for telling stories in, in a different way. But, you know, I've, I've written a couple of these pilots and I'm like, man, I think I could make these. I think I could make these on my own. And I've thought about that with one of my pilots. Like, do I make this? Do I make this 30-minute comedy? Do I put $10,000 into making this and make it professionally? Obviously, profession, I could burn through $10,000 in a second. But usually when people are working on a passion project, $10,000 is enough to get the nice camera, the nice equipment, the nice editor, and all that jazz and tell, and, and tell my story. So... There will be there will be a lot of this moving forward. There will be a lot of um, making content. I just I just hope the more content I make, I can reach a bigger audience. And once I have a bigger audience, that provides more abundance to try other things. And with that additional sort of um, fu money, you know, to like that doesn't have to go to your retirement or doesn't have to go to paying the bills. With that additional money, I could see myself having like sort of a production company where we throw money at different projects like Hollywood posers. I mean, Hollywood posers 
is kind of dead in the water right now. We don't have any plans to make any future episodes, but we want to, we love the content. And that's something that if I, if I do it again, I want to do it right and, and make it like professional and real and, and, you know, maybe it gets sold to somebody. Maybe we license it. Who knows? But like, um, I believe in myself and I believe in my friends and our storytelling. And it just comes down to going, okay, I've got, I've, I've sort of proven that this can work. And now it's just about getting it to a bigger level. I know the audience is there. So uh, to answer your question in long form, if, if there's anything that I could do um, uh, for any price, it's cl- very close to what I'm doing now. I would just try to maybe do, maybe I would do this. Maybe instead of doing like three to five videos a day, I do one or two because it does get a little crazy in the day with all the content I'm making, but I'm also like, you know, sometimes it's the third or fourth video that hits. Sometimes the one I think that's going to be popular isn't and and another one is. So like, I don't always know what's going to hit. So I just make a bunch of content that seems interesting. And, and that's kind of what I do. But yeah, if I have a producer and an editor and, and when that time comes, I can probably, um, you know, like, Oh, you know, you know, what's another big one is not, not booking the the shows like booking a podcast, booking guests. That's that, that managerial part is what I'm not good at. So like I live in LA where I could get really great guests for my podcast. And I'm kind of just like reaching out to people and scheduling. It's kind of a pain in the butt, but as the channel grows, maybe it'll be a little bit more like um, enticing for guests to want to come on. And I'd love to have, you know, that room that's set up for just those one-on-one conversations and those, you know, it's nice, you know, it's not too far from what Joe Rogan does, to be honest. Um, but this is the setup that's worked for me now and it won't be going anywhere anytime soon. I do want to thank all the Patreon members so much for all of your support. You guys have, uh, really stepped it up this year from 20 members to maybe 130. I thank you guys so much for watching this on the Patreon app and for all the audio. I know I know it's been a little bit of a soul searching for me with the audio podcast. I for sure don't want to pigeon myself into bachelor related content, but I also know that that's the niche that is paying the bills. Uh, with the audio podcast, uh, the SAP, sexactuallypodcast.com, it's built on dating and relationship, communication, positive energy, motivational. Like I love all the themes of it. I just wonder, do I change it to something that's more brand related to my name, Dave Neal? So that's something that as YouTube has picked up on my name to promote it, the sap isn't something that gets any traction on the internet. So do I, do I ditch it and just say, you know, my, if you guys remember the podcast was called you up the podcast and then it became the sex actually podcast. And then I shortened that to the sap and now next it might be the Dave Neal show. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think? I'd love to hear your comments on that. Um, the sap doesn't mean anything to me other than, it's been a nice chapter in in the whole conversation. I don't want to ditch the podcast altogether, but I have been like wondering, all right, what's the next steps for it? Maybe we just call it the Dave Neal Show. Uh, let me know. Let me know what you guys think. Uh, that's going to be it for me, and I will see you guys next time. Uh, bye, everybody. Bye.